Hi everyone and welcome. This is Seek Sustainable Japan. I'm JJ Walsh here in Hiroshima. And today, once again, I have the pleasure of talking with Asby Brown. Thank you so much for joining, Asby. Thanks for having me again, Joy. How many times does this make it? Five times, six times? I think it might be five or six. Yeah. I love coming on your show so much. So really, thank you. Wonderful. And this time,、uh, we're actually going to meet in person. In a couple days,、uh, you are、yes. the head guide, as well as you're going to talk about、uh, your research with SafeCast informing this tour that we're doing in Fukushima、uh, starting this Wednesday, right? That's right. Three days with、uh, English speaking media people,、uh, most of whom are Tokyo based.、Uh, most of them, if they've been to Fukushima, have only been once.、Uh, and yeah, it'll be a chance for me to give people you know, reliable information about the situation regarding radiation, food safety, what's going on with this stupid water,、uh, what about this plan to move all that contaminated earth <laughs> around the country,、uh, and also to introduce. People that I have known for years and love,、um, you know, who are doing interesting things,、uh, you know, innkeepers, people running interesting businesses, people doing interesting things with food,、uh, people that really want others to, to meet and get to know. So that's great.、Um, before we start, we're going to go through the points of the tour. You sent me some pictures to talk about and then、uh, give people an update on、uh, how, what you've been doing with SafeCast since the last time we talked. Of course, a focus on the Ukraine and,、uh, mm-hmm. and the data there. Congratulations, by the way, huge milestone passing 200 million. That's amazing. Yes, it kind of snuck up on us. I mean, it used to be we were really watching the, you know, the numbers you know, for every what seemed to be notable milestone. And then this one's like, oh my God. You know, in a, in a few days, we'll pass 200 million. And the actual, we crossed the 200 million data point、uh, you know, level at some point back in February, and none of us noticed it that day. <laughs> we had to go back and, and catch it. But for us, it's, it's a huge deal. I mean, it took a long time, over a year,、uh, to get a million data points. And I remember when we crossed 10 million, and、uh, I think it's been like four years, four, four to five years that we crossed、uh, from, you know, went from 100 million to 200 million. Million. And what I want people to understand is that this is more data and it's open data、uh, than most countries have for things like、uh, radiation.、Uh, so we think that's really, really、uh, an achievement. Yeah, people, I, I do a lot of tours in Hiroshima around Peace Park. People always ask me, does Hiroshima still have radiation? And I always say, you can check online, safecast.org. You can see radiation levels around the world. It's, it's such a great resource for anyone. Curious, right?、Uh, th- thanks. It's really gratifying to hear. And it's interesting. Of course, people in Hiroshima would want to know. Uh, and I've been with people traveling in Hiroshima too, and they've had the same question. So,、uh, yeah, so that's great that there's a resource. And we're really happy that people、uh, who are living in Hiroshima and also traveling through often、uh, collect data and upload it to our, our database. So, that's really、right. a great thing.、Yeah. Uh, just to give people who don't really know about SafeCast an idea、uh, so, you're collecting data、uh, open source in 120 countries, as you see here. Is there anything else you want to say just to give a kind of introduction of what SafeCast is doing? Yeah, like the elevator spiel would be、uh, SafeCast began really 
the day after the uh, March 11th, 2011 disasters, uh, and largely in response to the lack of uh, what we consider credible data from official sources about uh, the spread of radiation in Japan and elsewhere. So, um, and we eventually started developing hardware like what's pictured on screen. This is a Bigaigi Nano, which have built-in uh, GPS and data logging capabilities. Uh, this one was designed as a kit. People assemble it and it allows them to seamlessly upload the data to our uh, open map. And within a few years, you know, we thought it, it would just be people in Japan who are concerned, but we started to get data from all over the world. And now it's it's more than 120 countries. So uh, it's really a global project, uh, volunteer driven, and all based on open source, open information, transparency. Uh, yeah, this is the growth of our data set. I guess we passed 100 million in 2018. Uh, and then since then, yeah, we're up to 120 million, or the 200 million. One thing that we know Noted was during the years of the pandemic, you can sort of see it was climbing kind of steeply around 2016, 17, 18, and then it sort of doesn't climb as much during the pandemic years, 2019, 2021, uh, and 22. So, but we were still getting a lot of data. Uh, even though things were shut down in a lot of countries and people weren't traveling, uh, the system allowed people just to continue to uh, sort of even automatically keep gathering data and, and uploading the data. So for us, that was a validation of our uh, the design of our system. Oh, wow. And uh, of course, you're still monitoring in Fukushima. And a lot of the things that you're going to be talking about on the tour in Fukushima are informed by your years of research with SafeCast, right? Exactly. It's it's measurements and experience and talking with experts. Uh, and we talk with experts of, of every type, people who are, you know, very, very critical, people who are less critical, uh, the so-called anti-nuclear experts. We have a lot of people in our, our network from that side. We have a lot of people who are not necessarily that type. And, you know, it, you Gradually, over the course of years, you can really put together a sort of consensus view of what's going on. But the key is is measurement and monitoring. And this is a big IG. Uh, I'll be bringing uh, at least one big IG and some other detectors, and I can show people. You know, this is what the levels are. Here, surprisingly, it's really the same as Tokyo. Uh, here, it's higher, and you don't want to spend a lot of time here. Uh, you don't maybe you don't want to live here. Yeah, there's a lot of issues and a lot of nuance, which I think uh, I can help people understand. Right. Uh, well, let's uh, talk about the Fukushima situation. Mm. Uh, last time we talked, uh, you were talking about releasing the contaminated water. And this is an ongoing issue, right? Yes, it's an ongoing issue. Uh, if you recall, back in April 2021, uh, Prime Minister Suga announced that uh, the decision had been made to dilute this over a million tons of water uh, that has been gathering in tanks on the Fukushima Daiichi site, uh, which contains tritium and other radionuclides, to dilute, dilute that and gradually release it to the ocean uh, over the course of 30 or 40 years. And this was a controversial plan from the beginning. And uh, there have been a lot of critics uh, and, uh, you know, supporters as well, people saying this is probably the least bad option. Uh, and our main criticism has always been on the side of transparency and process. Um, the plan is that it will start to be released within a few months, uh, maybe, you know, late spring, early summer. Uh, and we 
want people to understand that there is, uh, you know, in terms of stakeholder engagement, in terms of having the people who will be affected involved with this, there are processes around the world. Uh, some countries, particularly in Europe, they have very, very clear processes where even before an environmental impact study is done, uh, the general public, other experts, other stakeholders are involved in deciding what the scope of that study should be, what should we measure, what do we want to know. Uh, it's driven by science, but also by concerns uh, of people. Uh, in, in the case of this release, uh, the first environmental impact study wasn't released until five months after the decision was made, not until November 2021. TEFCO released this study, and it had gaps it had it wasn't very good it wasn't very thorough uh, it was almost like yeah we're just going to go through the motions and check off the checkbox we did an environmental study and they asked for feedback you know public comment and we did and a lot of experts did and this has led to you know some modification of that but this is not not how it's supposed to work they they've known since at least 2013 when it was first suggested both by the Japanese regulator uh, and by the IEA that maybe they should think about diluting and releasing it uh, they've known for years and still, you know, we're not able to put together a process that's we consider adequately transparent uh, and uh, adequately, um, you know, in involving the people who can be affected. So the decision was made. And um, suddenly, of course, there's outcry from uh, neighboring countries like South Korea, like the uh, People's Republic of China, uh, later by the uh, you know, Pacific Ocean states. And uh, uh, so, you know, there was an outcry and they're within their rights to do that. Um, now, I will point out that uh, we believe that if TEPCO does uh, what they say they're going to do, and uh, managed to remove all the other radionuclides. There's strontium in these tanks, there's ruthenium, there's all sorts of other things. There's cobalt in these tanks, uh, which TEPCO didn't admit into 2018. Uh, so there's all sorts of this stuff. They say they're gonna finally clean that stuff out. If they do that and it's just tritium and they are able to dilute it to these levels that they say, the impacts will probably be very small. And I, I think even the fisher, fishermen and others who are looking at this and are critical for other reasons, they accept that it's probably not going to be really a danger to the fish or to people who eat it. But there's still these questions that are unanswered and, and, and fragmentary data and this process that has not been uh, done the way it's supposed to be done. So I think people who are questioning and saying, wait a minute, answer the, answer the questions first, show the data first before you, you do it, uh, they're very, very right. Um, and the other thing is the IAEA uh, immediately uh, basically supported the decision and said, we're here to support. And they have sent a team uh, more than once to Fukushima to help uh, determine what kind of monitoring should be done to offer to uh, partly oversee that, to do double checking, corroboration of the data. So they took samples. Uh, from this water and from the ocean, and they're, uh, you know, basically analyzing that. It's probably almost analyzed, but they won't release their findings. I don't know for will it be a month from now? Will it be you know, sometime in April? We don't know, but um, I can imagine that the IEA will then say, "Yes, we've measured the the water, and this is what we found. It looks like it'll be okay." And then the the release starts like the next day. So this is again not how it's supposed to go. They're, they turned it into this mad dash to the line to open the, the valves to, to dump this water. But, you know, uh, it's just not the right kind of process. And our criticism is more on the procedural side, uh, the legal side, the stakeholder side, the transparency side, than on the safety side. Right. 
I want to talk about uh, the contaminated soil and what's being done uh, with that in a minute. Um, but of course, one of the things that we're doing on the tour, which is very interesting and I think very important if you want to create some kind of inbound tourism appeal, is talking about how the food and the fish is really strictly tested before it's used. And it, that's not done around Japan. Um, but still, there's the stigma of safety, right? That's a well, big issue. There's a stigma and people are worried and, and, you know, it makes sense based on what people hear. And, um, you know, the, the fact is, you know, uh, in most places in the world, um, you know, we're getting lots of, you know, radiation exposure from natural sources, uh, from the ground, from rocks in the ground, from, you know, cosmic radiation and things. Uh, and, and we'd get a certain amount of natural radiation from the food we eat, especially potassium 40. But in a situation like Fukushima, this is fallout. This is spread cesium. Uh, what's that doing? Is it is it a danger? Uh, I, I think and my colleagues agree that one of the things the government, the Japanese government did right was to quickly establish a food monitoring program. Uh, and it was pretty thorough. Uh, they would keep farmland, uh, you know, the products off the market until it was demonstrated, uh, you know, several times over the course of six months or, or a year that it was under the limits. Uh, and uh, this testing was very, very thorough. But, you know, with all of the problems with credibility, all of the lack of transparency from the government at the time, all of the obvious, let's say, incompetency and things that we saw, people are totally justified not to trust that data. The good thing is, just like SafeCast, uh, you know, we started to monitor radiation in the environment. Lots of citizen groups started to monitor food radiation. This is both in, in Fukushima and in other parts of the country, including uh, Tokyo. And I'm sure there's some labs actually in, in Hiroshima. Uh, they didn't take the government's word. They measured food as well. And as the data accumulated enough to compare, Basically, people understood that the, 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 the food uh, testing was working, that there was no huge difference between what the uh, citizen labs were finding and what the government was saying. So that was good. It might not have happened that way. The other thing being, the government only tests food that is going to go through the, the, the market process, you know, through the distributors, through the supermarkets, et cetera, to those kinds of shops. But if someone is just uh, growing food on their own, uh, and selling it at, at a stall by the side of the road, or they're going to the mountains and they're picking mushrooms uh, and eating them, or maybe trying to sell those, those are not being tested by the government system. So having these uh, citizen labs available for testing is really critical because that's really the only place you'll get that information. So at this point, lots of people in Fukushima have their food tested. Uh, and we will visit a very interesting testing lab in Minami Soma called Todoke Dori, uh, run by very good colleagues who actually uh, run the Futabaya Inn in Odaka in Minami Soma, uh, where we will be staying. And uh, we've known them for years. We've done workshops with them. Uh, they are very active with monitoring radiation. You know, since the start, uh, they had very good uh, contacts in Ukraine. They've traveled to Ukraine several times to learn from people there how they dealt with the situation, what they need to know, how to measure. And they came back and they've taught people how to do that. And they have this laboratory and we'll go to see that uh, and we can sort of see what the process is and how do you know? What do you need to know and how do you know and, and, and what do all these numbers mean? So I think this is something that 
I would say Fukushima Prefecture uh, would rarely bring people to. Uh, and I kind of insisted, I said, no, we really want to do this. It's really important for the foreign media specifically to actually see this process and to get a better picture of how we know that the food is okay and when you should be suspicious. <laughs> that is so interesting that they've been training in the Ukraine and sharing yeah. that information across the world. Yeah. Uh, I know that uh, people from Hiroshima who are radiation experts, uh, when Tohoku happened, when and uh, Fukushima issues are ongoing, they do go back and forth. And I imagine Fukushima people are becoming experts themselves. And the next disaster, they might be the ones going and giving advice and training, right? Yes, it's a huge expertise. And I think it's kind of underappreciated how knowledgeable people in Fukushima are about these issues, radiation in general, food safety. And, and most of these people, they're very skeptical of what the government tells them. And, you know, basically they want to prove it to themselves, demonstrate it to themselves, and they know how to do that. Uh, interesting thing, Joy, is, you know, after the invasion of Ukraine began last year uh, by the Russians, um, you know, we got into contact, of course, with our friends in Fukushima who know a lot of Ukrainians and shared a lot of information there. Uh, and we started to... Um, of course, we, we started a project in Ukraine, which I can tell you about. I guess I'll tell you about that. Um, uh, we uh, quickly were able to get together uh, big Aegis uh, in Europe to send to Ukraine. We met uh, people, uh, this one guy's name is Pavlo Kachenko, who uh, founded a, an MPO called Saved Nipro. It's in Nipro in, in Ukraine. And they started by monitoring air quality and other pollution. And then a, a year before the invasion, realized there was a lot of radiation data online, public stuff that they could use to put on their maps. They ended up having the only data from Chernobyl after the Russians went in and invaded there and all of the radiation sensors went offline. So we got to know them, uh, and uh, and then we were able to send them some sensors. And we started a program called Be Geigis for Ukraine. Uh, and within a few months, uh, we had like over 300,000 data points from there. I talk to these people almost every day. Uh, we have a couple of researchers in Chernobyl uh, who also participate, who put them on the four-wheel drive vehicles. They, they work on, the, they're basically the rangers of Chernobyl, uh, and they're involved with that. And uh to connect back to the people in Fukushima, uh, I was telling them about our, our, our program in Ukraine. They were very interested. Uh, and I said, you know, our counterpart uh, in Ukraine said they would like to get some dos dosimeters, personal dosimeters. And these are small radiation detectors that you wear in your body. Uh, for, for days or weeks or months at a time, and it tells you what your cumulative dose is. And this is one of the best ways to know what your external radiation exposure is going to be. And instantly the response was, yeah, we all have them and we're not using them. And, you know, so we just sent, you know, a box full of dosimeters uh, about a month ago, uh, donated by people involved with Fukushima uh, to Ukraine. They really want to give back. You know, they they felt they... The, the people of Ukraine were so generous to people of Fukushima and helped them so much and 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 they want to give back. So it's a beautiful thing to see. And I'm really happy to somehow be involved with that. That's awesome. Uh, before we go through the slideshow that uh, things we're going to see on the tour, uh, do you want to talk about the contaminated soil plant? Sure. So, you know, I mean, among the decisions that I feel I can only respond with this huge question mark is um, this decision by the government to uh, reuse contaminated soil 
gathered from Fukushima as part of the decontamination process uh, to reuse this in other parts of the country. And the, the decontamination process has been going on for years, uh, and it uh, amassed something like um, 14 million cubic meters of dirt uh, that was scraped from farmland and other places. Uh, it's separated into the higher radiation stuff and the lower radiation stuff, and then put in this gigantic landfill, which is on both sides of Fukushima Daiichi in, in the town of Okuma and the town of Futaba. And this is like 1,600 hectares. It's as, about as big as Shibuya Ward, if that makes sense to people. It's gigantic. And the agreement, or the government promised the people of, of, of Okuma and Futaba that they would only leave it there for 30 years. Why? I don't know. It was hard to get permission to use the land. It is a burden on the people. Uh, they're saying they want to return the land quickly. I mean, on the one hand, you can say, well, maybe that's a positive motivation. But what are they going to do with that for 30 years? The radionuclides have a half-life. Uh, cesium-137, which has a lot, it has a 30-year half-life. After 30 years, the radiation level will decline by half. If it's low at that point, to begin with, it's going to be lower. But, you know, they're talking about stuff that can be up to fairly radioactive, 8,000 becquerels uh, per kilogram. That's kind of radioactive. They're going to reuse this in roadworks and making, you know, earth berms and put the, they call it recycled soil. This is radioactive stuff. They cover it with clean soil uh, and build a road on top of it, for instance. And on the one hand, you know, I've been to sort of demonstration uh, plots in, in Fukushima where they've done some, you know, testing experiments and you can measure the radiation after they've covered up with the clean soil. And it's pretty close to normal background. It's pretty similar to what's in Tokyo. But what a crazy idea. I mean, who is going to agree to do this? Um, for, for one thing, this is a seismic country, uh, typhoons, you know, floods. We're entering this increasingly, you know, uh, violent weather patterns from, you know, climate change. Uh, you know, what happens if one of these roads or earth mounds gets a big crack in it and the sand pours out and stuff? And, you know, it may not be, you know, uh, really death threatening or anything that bad, but still it's it's really a crazy idea. And um, not surprisingly, I mean, the government started thinking about this several years ago and floated it and started to talk to different prefectures. You know, we want to do a project there. Everyone said no. Unsurprisingly, no prefecture wants this stuff. Um, so now here's the deal. This is supposed to happen like, uh, you know, uh, 2045 or something, or 2035. Uh, and it's in the future. It's way down the road. But they're trying to prepare people now and try to get people to agree to do this now. There's even uh, a demonstration project uh, begun in Shinjuku Gyoen in Tokyo, where they will put the, you know, radioactive soil in there and cover it with some clean soil and like grow, glow, and rather grow flowers on there. Uh, and then the idea is that people go by and say, what pretty flowers and look, there's no radiation or something. But this is just this crazy idea. I mean, who comes up with these ideas? And it's really because they painted themselves in a corner. By saying, well, first of all, by deciding to do that decontamination in that way, rather than, for instance, leave it, uh, pay the people for the property, uh, keep it in trust for 100 years when the radiation levels will naturally decrease to acceptable levels, then, you know, keep it in trust so they can go back to their descendants, uh, make it a nature preserve, uh, something like that, rather than 
digging all this stuff and cutting all these trees and doing this, uh, just is creating another problem down the road. Um, so to me, it's a baffling situation, but they, they painted themselves in a corner just like they did with this water. You know, they, they, they have it. They didn't really investigate enough options, I think. Uh, other experts agree with that. Uh, in this case of this dirt, you know, it's there in this interim 30-year storage area. Why not just leave it there and, and make those people whole? Somehow, all those people whose property they're using or borrowed or leasing, however they were doing it, you know, make them whole somehow. Uh, I just wish the government had approached it in a different way. Right. Wow. That's uh, well. I had no idea they were moving it to the center of Tokyo. Well, um, it's a small plot, you know. And interestingly, this is under the um, jurisdiction of the Environment Ministry, and they have other places as well, a few other places in the country where they're doing these demonstrations because the basically the the Environment Ministry can do it on their own recognizance. But um, you know, it's. They're just trying, they make the decision. In, in terms of decision-making, uh, this is the pattern called, you know, decide, announce, defend. And uh, this is what they're doing. Rather than saying, hey, people, we got this soil. What do you think we should do with it? And start from there. Uh, you know, let's hear your ideas and let's pull in the experts and, you know, begin with this inclusive process with the stakeholders. Uh, and again, there's lots of guidelines for this. Uh, it's it's even legally stipulated in, in, in the EU and other countries. Why isn't that legally stipulated in Japan? Uh, and they basically then they'll, you know, anyway, basically they make the decision and then they try to rush through and persuade people and maybe give them a lot of money, you know, if they are you know, whatever, not happy about it. Oh, this is not yeah. a good process. No one's going to trust it. No and it, it goes back to your argument about uh, transparency. Why not uh, talking with experts? Why not going through the, the usual steps of transparency, whether it be mm. what to do with contaminated soil or contaminated water? Uh, mm. There are known and accepted steps that are usual to take, yes. right? Yes. Even in the radioactive sector, the radiation world, um, like in Europe and a few cases, uh, countries have been able to uh, get citizens to uh, agree to have uh, these very, very deep, long-term radioactive waste storage sites constructed in, in their you know, municipalities. Uh, because they follow this process that the people believe is fair, that they believe they're being listened to, uh, that they see that there's an upside for them, maybe it's, it's financial, maybe it's something else, uh, and then they can agree to do it. Uh, but for this dirt, what's the upside for anybody to take that dirt and have it on the roads in their town, right? Yeah, that, that's definitely something to keep an eye on uh, what's happening with those decisions. Yeah. Uh, let's let's yeah, go, go through the photos and, and mm -hmm. start talking about the tour. And then um, I'm sure these other issues will likely come back and uh, have a bigger discussion as well. Mm -hmm. uh, what are we looking at now? Is this the Ono looking Station? At a, looking at a cat. Ukedo <laughs> Elementary School. Yeah, we have a visitor. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah this is Ukedo Elementary School in the town of Ukedo, uh, which is part of Namie uh, in Fukushima. It's on the coast. It's a fishing town with a very long history. And like every coastal town in Fukushima, uh, it was seriously destroyed by the tsunami. And like many of the towns in coastal Fukushima was then blanketed by 
a lot of radioactive fallout. Uh, so it was really a sad thing that happened in this town, um, you know, that basically a lot of people uh, were, were injured and a lot of people died. Uh, and uh, the evacuation was can't, or rather the, um, the search for survivors was canceled uh, because of the evacuation order, because of the radio radio radiation. So the town has a lot of, 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 of you know, basically wounds because of that. But this uh, elementary school story is one of those wonderful stories. Uh, this school um, had about 83 pupils there the day of the, uh, the earthquake and tsunami, and the teachers quickly uh, told the students to evacuate. And they had been practicing for this for a while, and they all ran to a, a nearby uh, hillside, which is about two kilometers away. They ran uh, and made it to safety before the tsunami hit and the school. So they all survived, not a single loss of life. And uh, and then they walked very far to the other side of the mountain and it was snowing, it was cold and they, a truck met them and took them to the evacuation center. And it was a grueling, grueling uh, traumatic day, but they all survived because of their own determination and, and, you know, initiative and, uh, and, you know, following, you know, the instructions from teachers who really cared and knew what needed to happen, including one of the kids was in a wheelchair and they, they carried, they piggybacked this kid, their, their fellow student to get him, to get him, uh, you know, to safety. So a remarkable story. Uh, and the school was destroyed. It was a fairly recent school built maybe 10 years, uh, before the, the tsunami. And, uh, it wiped out the lower floors, and but left the second floor kind of untouched. And there's marks on the school where the water came to. And for years, uh, we would go to Fukushima. I would go with our SafeCast colleagues or going with other people. And it was fenced off, and we'd just press our noses against the fence and say, God, you know, what's it like inside? Well, the government decided to turn it into a memorial. And to do it in a way, that means that they left most of it untouched. They, they just did a minimal cleanup and, and some safety things to make sure stuff doesn't fall on people and cleared out a pathway with some rails so people can go through this destroyed school that is like it was left, you know, on March 11th. Uh, and it is a remarkably moving experience. I mean, you understand the power of that tsunami uh, and you understand, you know, uh, you know also the, 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 the wonderful fact that you know, nobody was stuck in there uh, when it hit. Yeah, that's amazing. And yeah. being being in Hiroshima, we know how important it is to have the A-bomb ruins, the A-bomb mm -hmm. dome, right? For it's people the to sort of see thing. these things for themselves, right? They were clearly inspired by that. And, you know, there was a lot of discussion and, you know, there's probably a bunch of people did want to tear it down. But, you know, they decided they would keep it as a memorial. So meanwhile, other parts of the town that had you know, remain standing, other buildings, some of them, you know, which could have been also memorials, they've taken that down. So this is part of an overall process of establishing memorials all up and down the Tohoku coast. And in Fukushima, there's several, uh, each city, each municipality basically has some sort of memorial. And this is uh, very close to a new memorial park that's being built, uh, which will have sort of a you know, uh, uh, it's a hill and people go into that un almost underground with a memorial with the names of the people uh, who perished. Uh, and and it's also very close to the, uh, you know, tsunami and earthquake and whether the Fukushima uh, uh, Nuclear Disaster Memorial Museum in the town of Futaba. So there's like a memorial road 
that's being built and this is this is part of it yeah incredible and uh yeah i'm so glad that there there is a discussion about what to keep and what mm. what do we need to keep and preserve for future generations to have the impact of what happened here um, which is important for tourism. It's important for future generations of Japanese people as well, right? This is part yeah. of their heritage. This is who this is who people are, and this is what they went through. And it's traumatic to remember, uh, you know, like the A bomb. I mean, that was arguably more traumatic, but still horrific. And uh, you know, some people want to forget and move on with their life. They don't want to be tortured by nightmares and terrible memories. But on the other hand, it's important to to remember the people both who perished and the people who did good things. And uh, this is something I really think is important. Absolutely. But you, you can really understand it from both sides, right? Like you can mm. understand how survivors of the tsunami who lost mm. so many people that they cared about, yeah. uh, it's painful to see it. Yeah. It's painful. Um, right? I'll, yeah. I'll tell you, you know, I like I said, I've been going to the site for years now, since 2013 or so. When when it became accessible, it was closed off for a long time and then became accessible. Uh, so I've been going for a long time. And there's a, a hillside memorial and cemetery. Uh, the previous cemetery was destroyed, so they moved out there and then they interred the, the people who died in the disaster, which is fortunately not that many, but they're there and there's a memorial cenotaph. And when I would stand there and look over the town, you know, I would get PTSD. I wasn't even there. And I would start to feel this strange, you know, yeah, it was PTSD. And I understood that. And, uh, you know, uh, it's really, really traumatic for people. So I understand why some people will probably avoid these memorials for a long time because of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, next, what are we looking at here? So uh, the town of Futaba, uh, is one of the towns that the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant is in. Uh, and then, you know, that's on the southern part of the town. And then the northern part uh, was the former town center with Futaba Station. Uh, it was a town with shops and Shoten Gai. And uh, it was famous for this Daruma festival every year, Dharma Market, Dharma Festival. Uh, but, you know, the coastal part of the town was destroyed. Uh, and that's where this new museum, this memorial museum was built. Uh, and the town, the part of the town, it's about two kilometers away where the station is. Uh, you know, it was derelict, was turning, had turned into a ghost town before it was reopened and it was kept closed because of radiation until they could decontaminate it. Uh, and then two years ago, basically they, they started to reopen it and people demolished a lot of the buildings. So it is this half empty town. And, uh, a, a, an artist whose business is doing wall murals, uh, who does a, a Tokyo-based people company, they do a lot of things, corporate, you know, offices and things, and also external stuff, happened to meet uh, a guy in Tokyo running an izakaya who used to run an izakaya in Futaba. And they started to talk. And uh, the painter, um, he has a company called Overalls. And he said, you know, in other parts of the world, like Los Angeles and other towns, this wall murals are used as a way to help revitalize the town. And that immediately led to uh, him being asked to do wall murals. So uh, they've painted quite a few on buildings and gradually they got more and more ambitious and more and more people from the town are invited. Uh, and this, this one is on a rather new commercial building. Um, you know, it, it shows this Dharma, they have this giant Dharma that they would, uh, 
pull through the street, almost like a tug of war, you know, and this, uh, the hands of these people uh, in the painting, actually people from the town, they took photos of their of their hands and use them, you know, as a basis, uh, you know, for the painting. So there's quite a few of these wall murals, uh, and it's called Futaba Art District, and it's it's interesting. Uh, some of them are, are 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 moving and a little unsettling in a way. A lot of them feature people from Futaba. You know, gradually as time went on, more and more people wanted to be involved and have their picture up there. Uh, and then the, the hope is that the town is going to change and rebuild and. A lot of these buildings may not exist anymore, and and or they will be hidden behind new buildings. So it's part of a process to show uh, this determination to come back against great odds. I mean, only a handful of people have come back, and there's no guarantee that many ever will. But people want to show that they have an identity, and they don't want to lose that identity, uh, and and they're still here in spirit, even if they're not physically living there. Yeah, this is the Dharma painted on a, a bank building. Kind of three colors. It's as if the, the colors shifted, like a, a, it, the colors have sort of spread somehow. And if they come back together, the, the, the red, yellow, and blue, then there'll be black like a Dharma is supposed to be. And that'll mean the town is whole. So this kind of, you know, metaphorical, uh, you know, expression, kind of interesting. It is. And it, yeah. just the colors make it... It looked more alive and lived in yeah. and wanted, yeah. right? But I, and I, yeah. getting away from the idea of a ghost town, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, the town is largely empty, this part. And, and there's more activity uh, further down close to the museum. And then there's Route 6, which runs north-south, fairly close to the coast in, in uh, you know, Minamisan, or rather in Fukushima. And that's a lot of activity there. Yeah, this photo is from inside Ukedo Elementary School. This was like the office you know, and this was a machine that apparently coordinated the clocks and this got wiped out and all the clocks stopped then. So there's still a bunch of clocks that are stopped at the time of the tsunami. Uh, mm. This is a photo showing the Soma Nomaoi festival. Uh, and one of the important things about, uh, you know, Fukushima in general and this region in particular is this history of samurai and daimyo. And most of the Hamadori area uh, was part of the Soma clan, so the Soma domain. Uh, and they had uh, these sort of contests, equestrian contests, hundreds of years ago, some people claim even a thousand years ago, uh, of competing on horsemanship, uh, riding, races, you know, archery, etc. And they've continued to this day, even after the Meiji period, when the samurai were, you know, basically disbanded, uh, these families kept that tradition going. And it's kind of amazing. You go, I mean, uh, if you look at this armor and the clothes they're wearing, a lot of them are 200 years old. Uh, they've been handed down from father to son uh, for generations. Uh, and of course, they'll patch them and they'll, you know, add new parts for the things they don't have or that have, you know, uh, fallen apart. Uh, they're literally walking in their ancestors' footsteps and riding in their ancestors' footsteps. And it's a big event in the summer in July. A huge tourist draw. A lot of people come in. You can't get a room. You got to get, you know, reserve a room, you know, more than a month in advance. Uh, and it's this remarkable uh, multi-day festival. So, uh, and we won't be able to see that because it's in July, but we'll go to the museum in Minamisoma that sort of celebrates this and, and, and we can see the stuff and see the armor and see that. It's interesting because Minamisoma 
and I would say particularly the town of Odaka, where we'll be staying, is very horsey. There's a lot of horse stuff going on, partly, I mean, mainly because this festival goes on, but there's a lot of places for people to go to do horseback riding and, you know, learn that stuff and, you know, walk through the town on a horse. And it's kind of cool, uh, un unexpected. I was there for a long time before I realized how horse oriented the place really is. Which is, yeah, unusual. There's not many areas of Japan where, where you see horses around, right? It's always kind of fake when they do a samurai thing, right? It's people dressing up. I mean, there's some of that here, but these are real, you know, former samurai families that are keeping, you know, their tradition alive. Uh, and uh, and they still keep the hierarchy, the old hierarchy, like the descendant of the Soma clan, because uh, they still still exist. The family still exists. It still has the, the, the place of honor. Uh, so it's kind of kind of cool. It's about who do they, do. do yeah. they invite women to take part or is it still more and more? I don't oh, know really? that many of them do the, 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 you know, hairy racing that they do, but uh, there's a lot of women and young girls participating, riding the horses, dressing up, etc. I've I've met more than one student who participates in that as well. So in that sense, it's fairly open, the sort of procession time, etc. I don't know if any women are doing the hard race. Yeah. Yeah, that looks really exciting. I, yeah. I've never seen that. And um, like there's gardens in Hiroshima and they say, oh, this is where the horses were kept near the castle or this is where they would train the horses. Um, but we don't have any actual ongoing, you know, tradition of using right. horses. So it'll right. be great to see an area that continues yeah. the tradition, yeah. right? continues it. Yeah. What are we looking at here, Asby? Okay, so this is on the coast uh, in Minami Soma City, in the town, the part of the town called Haramachi. It's a massive renewable energy installation. Uh, the government of Fukushima, just shortly after, I mean, a year or two after the disaster, uh, announced it has a policy of 100% renewable energy by, I think, uh, 2035 or so, and uh, maybe it's 2040, and uh, they're seem to be really trying. So there's a lot of mega solar projects around the prefecture. You know, some are simply making use of uh, agricultural fields where there's the, not enough people have come back to actually farm anymore. Uh, but this has this vast uh, solar uh, solar field. You can see it goes all the way almost back to the horizon there. And then uh, several like five or maybe four or five gigantic windmills there as well. Uh, and, you know, we're going to go see this because this is part of Fukushima, one, um, trying to do it right by energy. I mean, they suffered from this prior energy policy. They suffered from the disaster, but they were not benefiting from the electricity generated by Fukushima Daiichi at all. Uh, people were, were, were benefiting in terms of livelihood, etc., but they didn't benefit from that. So they uh, seem to be taking this very seriously. So there's biomass, there's geothermal, um, there's, again, the solar, the, uh, the the wind farms. There's another wind farm that was just announced will be constructed uh, offshore of, of the town of Iwaki in Hamadori in Fukushima. So uh, this is, I think, them taking it seriously and something I would like to encourage. It's kind of weird. It's kind of, I, you know, my friend and I, my colleague from SafeCast, Joe Moros, and I just sort of noticed it one day. We're driving, you know, I said, wow, what's this, you know, and it was pretty, pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, when I talked to Amy, uh, who's a resident of the Fukushima mm -hmm. area, she talked about how a lot of the energy created by TEPCO is used by Tokyo. Yeah, so no, wouldn't it be great to have the Fukushima area creating 
renewable clean energy for the biggest city in Japan. That would be awesome. Yeah. And I feel like it's one example of, in this case, it's official, you know, policy, but also individual entrepreneurs. And this is very much supporting entrepreneurs as well. Um, people sort of trying to do things in a very forward thinking way. I mean, no one uh, underestimates the challenges they face, uh, certainly in terms of population, certain terms of reputation, uh, the fact that radioactive contamination will linger for decades, you know, in the environment. Um, no one underestimates that, but they want to, sh to show that it's possible to do it better uh, and to be very forward thinking, to be pioneers. And uh, again, that's something that I really want to encourage. Yeah. And just the contrast of this photo. Uh, we have a cemetery in the front. Do yeah. we have greenhouses growing food? Yes. Do we have solar and wind all in the same view here? It's amazing. That's life. <laughs> the cycle of life. <laughs> amazing. Mm. All right. What's the so this is part of the museum, is it? Yeah. You know, um, we'll be visiting actually a museum in Tomioka. And there's like I mentioned, there's several memorials. There's a few museums. Um, I'm sorry. This actually is a photo of the, the main museum in Futaba. But um, they've done a pretty good job of uh, archiving uh, things, items. Uh, left over after the disaster that tell the story uh, by their own physical existence. So this is, you know, uh, black whiteboards and things by emergency workers that were used uh, in the museum. We'll go see there's a smashed up police car. The, the, the tsunami just smashed it up. In other places, there's information, you know, about, yeah, how do we know about radiation? How do we know, you know, about decontamination? You know, what is supposed to happen and, and, and how well is it working? So there's a lot of information available there. Uh, and, and it's interesting that you know um there are different sides to the story as you pointed out and some people are critical sometimes of how information is presented um for instance does this museum acknowledge enough how angry people were at government uh does this actually uh talk about accountability which needs to be talked about and and often they don't sometimes they do uh and and more than that the museums have local people there who are there to tell the story, what they experienced, what they went through, what they saw, what they want to have happen. Uh, and there, and this personal connection, once that's made, I think you hear what people really think, which is often very, very critical. So uh, yeah, there'll be some museum archive uh, activity on the on the tour as well. Oh, it's just incredible. And it's, it's part of the display and transparency of what happened, right? Like seeing the notes uh, during the disaster, seeing what they wore, uh, seeing how they store uh, mm -hmm. contaminated soil. Is that That's what that in is. the black that, bag? The so-called Furekong bag, the big black right. one, one cubic meter of which there are, you know, millions <laughs> being turned and, into the landfill. In, in, and uh, isn't it incredible to, to think that that flimsy piece of plastic is as a, as a uniform that's supposed to protect them? Like you would imagine people going into radioactive areas in spacesuits, you know, like the ultimate protection. But in reality, it was these kind of suits, right? We'll talk about that on the tour. And I will just explain briefly. This is not to protect you from like gamma radiation rays, which will go through even, you know, sheets of lead. Right. If they're unless they're thick enough. Gamma radiation is very penetrating. Right. Um, this is to keep the radioactive dust off of you. 
so that you don't breathe it in. So the combination of the Tyvek suit and the booties and the gloves and the mask and something on your head, you know, that's to keep you from breathing in radioactive dust. Uh, so that's that purpose. Yeah, it looks flimsy. Uh, and then you have to dispose of that. So, you know, um, it's interesting. So that, that becomes part of the contaminated waste. They have to dispose of it. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so they're single use. These uniforms. These are, these are single use. Yeah, that's one reason. Yeah, and they're you know they they work fairly well for what they're designed for, uh, and you know maybe people should always have a couple in their <laughs> in their safety kit. You know, and who never know you never know what'll happen. It'll help you in other kinds of pollution events as well. So it's uh, it's probably kind of something to become familiar with uh, and wow. to understand how it's supposed to work. Yeah, incredible. Mm. Uh, the fishing boats. Yeah. So we will stop uh, when we're in Ikedo. We plan to go to the port of Ikedo, uh, which was totally destroyed by the tsunami and all of the fishing boats were destroyed. And uh, the government rebuilt that. It took several years. It reopened a few years ago. There's a small fishing fleet now operating out of Ikedo, which interestingly seems to include a lot of female fisher people. And they opened, uh, rebuilt uh, a fish market where they can, you know, sell their stuff and uh, they operate from there. So, um, again, this is this connects to that question of, yeah, is the fish safe? How do we know? Um, you know, what's this? What will the effects be of, of this release of water when they do it? Uh, what do the fisher people think about that? Why do they oppose it? Um, how will we know? If it's okay. I mean, that's for us the real question is, you know, with all the issues of transparency and bad information and stonewalling we've seen, you know, up until now on these issues so frequently, uh, you know, how are people going to know uh, that they can trust the information? So uh, this is a place to actually see that. And, you know, these fishermen, the fisheries cooperatives, uh, there's, of course, Fukushima uh, prefectural one. There's the national cooperatives, there's the Fukushima one, and several ports, including Iwaki here in uh, Ukedo and also in Soma. We'll also be going to Soma. Um, you know, they have been trying to rebuild their market for, you know, more than a decade, carefully uh, monitoring the catches. Uh, there have been types of fish that have been prohibited to catch in certain areas. They've been following those rules very well. Uh, and again, testing testing the catch. Uh, and and little by little, the market has re returned. But, you know, their major concern is that, uh, of course, around the world, people know that Fukushima, you know, is going to release a lot of radiation into the water. And that will probably kill the market for fish from Fukushima uh, again. And they'll start from, you know, point zero again so this is really a problem and um, i'm not sure what can be done to um, to help them uh probably i think it's better not to release the water if that can possibly be avoided uh there should be other options i think there are other options they didn't really investigate but uh so now they're gonna you know basically get paid by the government not to fish uh so that'll be really a shame Wow. Uh, we've got some comments. Uh, Louise Puppy from YouTube says, very interesting. Thanks, Louise. And Pavo. Pa oh, Pavlo. Hi, Pavlo from Dnipro, Ukraine. Glad he's yeah. watching. I, I think, think we have has... his picture, right? Um, yes, we showed his picture a little bit. Can you find that picture of him holding the big aggie? Um, yeah. I think Pavlo has a Tyvek suit is what he means. Uh, he There's Pavlo wearing his, this was in the summer, he was monitoring um, you know, a coal slag field 
uh, at a at a, a you know coal power plant uh, in in U- Ukraine, something they've been monitoring for years because there's an issue near the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which which, which Russia has invaded and has sort of hijacked. Um, there were issues of, of uh, it seemed to be radiation releases from a nearby coal slag field. And uh, he was trying to investigate and find out, you know, how radioactive are these things normally? So he was using the Bigaigi to investigate that. But yeah, those guys have Tyvek suits. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Well, you need it. You need it, yeah. right? Yep. Um, after the fishing port, and then what are we looking at here? Oh, this is actually seeing just from a little bit offshore, uh, probably in Ukedo, it's a telephoto lens showing the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. You know, it really is on the ocean. It's there. The places we're going are very close within, you know, some cases three or four kilometers, some cases five kilometers. Um, you know, it's very, very close. It's it's part of the environment. And uh, and there is, perhaps you know, most of your viewers, maybe your viewers know that the, 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 the heaviest swath of uh, nuclear fallout sort of went northwest, uh, a band that goes northwest from the nuclear power plant. So actually, as you drive through on the roads that are open, you can see the radioactive levels climb and then go back down because of that. And I'll definitely demonstrate that. I mean, we go through quickly. Uh, the risks are very, very low. It's 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 like sun sun exposure. You know, if you're exposed for a hot sun for a short time, it, you probably won't get a dangerous amount. But if you're there for a certain period of time, you will. So driving through, you know, is probably not. I mean, we're sure it's not going to really uh, have uh, an, an effect on people. But it's noticeable. It's part of everyday life, and people have learned to accommodate the way they live to the presence of that and the presence of the nuclear contamination. Yeah. Your um, focus of your tour is on radiation, reconstruction, and community. Mm. And so it's, it's nice to see uh, a, a focus as well on local culture, uh, mm. what the community is doing to rebuild uh, shared workspaces. You talked yep. about entrepreneurship before. We're looking at some beautiful examples of pottery with yep. horses on them. Yeah, so um, there was for for centuries there has been a famous type of pottery called uh, soma obori, obori yaki or soma yaki, uh, which often have this sort of gray, gray, green glaze and often uh, painted decorations of horses. Again, because it's a horsey culture, and uh, this goes back centuries, like I said. And the famous pottery it began in a town called Obori, which is in the middle of Namie. Uh, it's actually inside the exclusion zone. It's in the no-go zone. That place had the best clay, and that's why the potters uh, gathered there. And actually, a few years before the disaster, they had opened a brand new big nobodigama climbing kiln to be used uh, communally by the potters and a big place for education and for selling this fabulous facility. And then they evacuated, and that place is unused. And all the potters spread out to different places. They evacuated different places. But some, you know, many of them remained in Fukushima. And uh, there's one pottery that we'll go to uh, in Iwaki that is formerly from Obori that's continuing uh, this kind of work. So it's it's really a shame uh, what happened. You know, community, like a pottery community, there's so many. There's Mashiko. There's so many in, in Japan where people go, uh, you know, to, to, to stay there and to learn from others. And this is now very, very difficult. People are continuing and we'll see what they're going to do, how, how they're approaching this, this issue of how to rebuild something like a craft community uh, there. 
Uh, and again, in entrepreneurship is important. And there's other places we'll go where, uh, for instance, in the town of Odaka, they really, there's a place called Pioneer Village. Yeah, which was started by an interesting guy named Wada, who's actually uh, uh, from uh, Western Fukushima, uh, from the Aizu region. And, and he announced a plan he said he's going to try to support the, the the establishment of 100 new companies in Fukushima, 100 new ones, small companies, and to support entrepreneurs. So he made this sort of incubator where people can stay and have events and do promotions and things. And there's a beautiful uh, glass, they call it a glass factory. It's a glass craft, uh, you know, company uh, run by women. Uh, and, and you can actually do a little demonstration there if you want there, uh, glass lamps and then uh, glass accessories and things. So this is actually becoming very, very successful. So this is a wonderful thing. People have this approach. Yeah, there are opportunities. Yeah, this is the night view of the, uh, of the you know, uh, Odaka Pioneer Village. Um, people have this, this sense that these are also opportunities uh, for people with a certain you know, kind of pioneering spirit uh, and a certain vision. We see this here in parts of Hamaduri. I see it in Itate. I see it in other parts of Fukushima as well. Uh, some people really uh, are are working hard to build something positive for the future. This is Tomoko Kobayashi, who runs the Futabaya Ryokan and also in that food testing place I mentioned. Wonderful person. Um, I met her in 2013. I was with my colleague, Joe Maras. Uh, we were in Odaka. It had just recently been reopened for people to go in the daytime only. And we went to the station to look at the government's official monitoring, radiation monitoring post. And there was this person planting flowers in the rotary in front of the station in a deserted town. And we went up and we said, hi, hi, we monitor radiation. And she said, oh, so do we. And she gave us her, you know, flyer and we start talking and she said, yes, my family has run this ryokan, this inn for generations right here in front of the station. And, you know, she said, uh, what's done is done. We just have to figure out how we're going to live here. Uh, in Japanese, ma, sunda koto dakara, kore kara doyate koko de kuraseru ka, kangai na kya. And I wanted to hug her. I thought, God, you know, that's, that's the right attitude. I love that. Really she wasn't going to take anybody's word for it. She and her husband and their members, their partners, they're monitoring, monitoring for years before they went back. They established the food monitoring. They said, we're going to make sure it's okay before we come back and before we uh, tell anybody else that we think it's okay. So great person. And you, you'll get to spend time. Wonderful host. And her inn is, is a meeting place for everybody. You know, on any given night, there will be, of course, neighborhood people. There'll be travelers. There may be students. There may be researchers. There may be government people. When I was there recently, there was a couple of people from Greenpeace. You know, sometimes there's someone from TEPCO there. And everybody sits around and drinks and gets to know each other and talks frankly. It's one of those incredibly important places. And she did it because she has that kind of charisma. And the food is great, too. And she cooks vegan. <laughs> oh, awesome. Looking forward to it. Yeah. And this is the house? This is Hakoba. No, this is Hakoba. Hakoba. This is a new sake brewery that opened in town in Odaka. Uh, and we'll be able to go have a tasting there. Uh, so nice. it's a small craft sake brewery. Uh, Wonderful. So, yeah, very interesting thing. And again, kind of visionary people. This is the interior. They remodel an old house. Uh, to make it, you know, it's traditional, but also new. And you can see the sake brewing brewing stuff. And you can sit there and this has kind of a bar and there's a beautiful terrace and you can sit there and, and try the sake. So it's a nice place. 
That's wonderful. Now, of course, being a designer and architect mm. yourself, uh, I'm looking forward to, to hearing some about the new designs of the entrepreneur businesses, but also famous architects are setting up there, like yeah. Kengo Kuma, right? Kengo Kuma has a couple of projects in the region. And in fact, he uh, has designed um, the new station for Namie. It's not just a station. It will be, you know, community centers and, you know, other buildings. So a whole redevelopment plan for the center of Namie, where there's already a very successful Michino Eki that opened, I think, two years ago, which sells local products. It has a restaurant, serves local food. And um, it's also just become a meeting place in a town where there's not a lot of places to go shopping still. Uh, this is very, very important. It's a vital thing. And so not far from that is the station and, and this plan, uh, kind of a really intense design, a Kengokuma-esque kind of swoopy, natural, but also futuristic design. Uh, and, you know, we'll see. Will these things work? Uh, you know, will this actually encourage people to come back? And, you know, people have voted with their feet and, and the majority of the people who evacuated have not come back. And I think local governments are very sanguine about that and say, yeah, you know, we may get 20% back. We may get 30% back. Um, you know, it's a real problem. So the people who do have the vision, I think, understand that they need to rethink everything, e economy, society, you know, community, uh, infrastructure for these much smaller populations. Uh, and also it's an aging population. A lot of people come back are already old and eventually they will start passing away. And what's going to happen then? So it's interesting. So I love to see the new stuff and the energy. Uh, and, you know, it does make it help make it an interesting place. Uh, architect Shigeru Ban designed a cafe for a bookstore in, in Odaka. Other leading architects have done, you know, public works and other things as well. It's an interesting place for architecture now. Uh, and I'm trying to talk uh, a former samurai family guy to uh, restore his family's uh, house, which is in uh, uh, which is in Okuma, a part of a, of a former samurai samurai village that was there. The Soma uh, daimyo sent them there because it's right on the border of the Taira uh, Tairahan, which is Tomioka. So between the borderline between Okuma and Tomioka is the borderline of the Soma and Taira. And it's interesting because still today there's like a little bit of sniping at each other, you know. So I think that there's opportunities there and people would be interested to see that, especially with that history. Sorry, muted myself. Um, I'm excited to do this tour with you, Asby, and really learn from your experience, uh, not only from the SafeCast and all your research with radiation, mm. but also your understanding of uh, Japanese culture from the past and, and present and with a focus on how can we create a better future? Mm. How can how can this be a hope tour? How can we invite tourists, but also new residents? Those kinds of questions, right? Yeah. And, and you know, we, we've discussed it, you know, you and I've discussed it, other people have discussed it. In terms of the radiation and safety aspects, you know, you have to be absolutely honest and open about that. You know, you can't just say, ah, don't worry, it's okay. You know, which is what typically happens, especially if it's run by the government. Uh, they don't necessarily want people to really understand those nuances and, and how people are making these decisions. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and like I said, I, I was surprised that, you know, I was asked to do this because I usually don't 
do this kind of thing, but it's only because I was able to help set the agenda and specify, you know, the sort of things I was going to talk about that do center on risk and do center on ongoing problems uh, that I agreed to do. So I'm, you know, looking forward to it. Looking forward to seeing you there and meeting a lot of new people as well. Ah, wonderful. So uh, anybody watching this, there'll be lots of photos coming on my my social media as well as Asby's um, over this next week. And then I'd love to catch up again with you, Asby, sometime later this month and talk about the Minka Summit, which is Yay. coming up. Coming yeah. up. I'm already thinking about my presentation. So it would be great be to see everybody again. And, I bet and, and I'll be uh, hosting the panel with all the, right. the main right. speakers. So that'll be yes. wonderful. Yeah. And last year's was so big, like 300 people. And I expect with the word of mouth, this year might even be bigger than that. So let's, yeah, let's see how it goes. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Asby. Thank you, everybody, for joining. Have a wonderful night. And we'll see you again next time. Take care. Bye. Thanks. It's all working out so far.